if the Fed needs to get the Fed funds rate to four and a half or five percent to really stamp out inflation and maintain their credibility, that's going to be a situation where you're going to see a much deeper impact on earnings and a much bigger market sell-off than what I'm anticipating. Hello and welcome to this Wealth Track podcast. I'm Consuelo Mack. Our topic today is the growing risk of recession. Today's guest is ClearBridge investment strategist Jeff Schulze, the architect of the firm's widely followed Anatomy of Recession program, whose 12 indicator recession risk dashboard has recently turned a cautionary yellow from expansionary green, signaling a heightened probability of an economic downturn. Jeff, welcome back to WealthTrack and tell us what's going on with your recession risk dashboard. What has changed? Consuelo, thank you so much for having me on again. And uh, the dashboard has seen massive deterioration uh, over the course of the, the second quarter into the third quarter. Um, just last month alone, we had three of the 12 indicators uh, change color towards a recession. Um, so it's a stoplight analogy where green is expansion, yellow is caution, and red is recession. And last month alone, uh, the yield curve went from green to yellow. Retail sales went from yellow to red, and commodities moved from yellow to red. Um, so as it stands today, um, we have five green, uh, three yellow, and four red signals. But more importantly, what happened over the last month is the overall signal moved from a green expansion to a yellow caution. And to maybe put it in perspective, coming into the second quarter, we only had two indicators that were yellow or red. So this is a very big change over the course of the last four months, and it's a direct consequence of the aggressive tightening that the Fed is doing to tamp down inflation. You know, we've just had two quarters of back-to-back -back declines in GDP, and a rule of thumb on Wall Street is that that means we are entering a recession. So why don't you think we are in one now? Well, contrary to popular wisdom, a recession isn't simply defined as two consecutive quarters of negative real GDP growth. Instead, the official arbiter of U.S. business cycles, which is the National Bureau of Economic Research, better known as the NBER, they define a recession as a significant decline in economic activity, lasting more than a few months, and it's normally visible in not only real GDP, but real income, employment, industrial production, wholesale retail sales. And, and looking at a lot of these measures, they're not signaling a recession quite yet. The reason why you had those two consecutive quarters of negative real GDP prints, a lot of it was from higher imports and a buildup of inventories, which tends to subtract from GDP. And taking payrolls, for example, over the first six months of this year, when we were supposedly in a recession here in the US, the US economy created almost 3 million jobs. To put that number in perspective, going back to the last decade from 2010 till the end of 2019, so the entire expansion uh, of the following the global financial crisis, the US economy created 183,000 jobs per month. So, you know, in the first six months of this year, that's almost two and a half times that run rate. Um, so you have a, a very healthy labor market. And quite frankly, you looking back to the 2001 recession, the 1960 recession, both of those instances, you never saw two consecutive quarters of negative real GDP prints. Um, so yes, I know that that's a common perception that that is a recession, but given the health of the labor market, I, I just don't think that we're in one quite yet.
I was looking at some of the research that you had, and in the, the 12 times the recession risk dashboard has turned yellow or cautious over the years. So eight of those have been followed by a recession, but four were not. So can you tell us what happened and what those four times that it did not turn into recession, what, what do they have in common, if anything? Well, of the, the four non-recessionary periods, um, three saw the dashboard go back to green. Uh, you saw that in 1995, 1998, and then in 2016. And one worsened to red in a recession never materialized, which is back in the, the mid-1960s. So very early on in the, the model's history, and economic growth slowed to 0.2% in the third quarter of 1967. But thinking about the more recent yellows that never materialized into a recession, in 1995 and 1998, um, both of those periods saw a dovish Fed pivot. Um, the Fed cut interest rates by 75 basis points in each of those instances. So they recognized economic weakness early, reversed course, and gave liquidity to the economy. And in 2016, the Fed ended up hiking only one time against a market that was pricing in four rate hikes for 2016. So that was effectively a net loosening of 75 basis points. So thinking about whether or not we can hold off a recession, I think a lot is going to be determined by the Fed and whether or not they blink or pivot and inflation comes down to a level where they're comfortable enough to maybe not go as aggressive with their hiking plans or potentially even do some rate cuts, which is the markets are starting to price in in 2023. Right. The markets do seem to believe that the Fed is going to pivot next year and start cutting rates. Uh, so what's your view of that? I think it's a bit of a Pollyanna-ish view uh, for the markets, um, you know, given the fact that the Fed has been fighting the ghost of inflation really since Volcker broke the back of inflation in 1980. Inflation has always been a fear, but it's never really materialized. And the fact that you have inflation with a basically a nine handle on it right now, the Fed really needs to bring inflation back down to uh, levels that uh, are consistent with their target, which is two or three percent. Um, if the Fed doesn't do this, they risk losing their hard-fought credibility, and it, it won't allow them to use the unconventional tools that we've seen in modern history, like quantitative easing or the alphabet soup of programs that were brought out when we shut down the economy due to the pandemic. So the Fed recognizes this. Um, they are not going to back off from their current tightening path until inflation is moving down in a more meaningful way. And they can be very confident that inflation is going to get closer to target. So uh, I think the Fed is on a, a predetermined course, and I, I really don't see them doing a pivot at this point. But I, I do want to say, Consuela, that the Fed may not need to see inflation get to 3% before they pivot. Going back to 1982, um, Volcker and the Fed pivoted pretty aggressively, um, being much more dovish um, because they saw inflation moving down in a more meaningful way. And CPI that year was at 6 or 7%, and it ended up getting all the way down to 2% a year later in 1983. Now, obviously, a very different backdrop than what we have today. They already caused a very deep recession, so inflation right. was naturally going to fall. But in, inflation is a lagging indicator. But what's that line in the sand for the Fed? Is it 4% inflation? Is it 5%, 3%? It's hard to know, but I just don't see the Fed blinking anytime soon. They're saying that it's 2%. Do you think that's just that they're putting that out there so that we take them seriously and that that's a goal? But if we were to go down to 3 or 4%, 
uh, that that would cause them to do the pivot? If we were get to get to 2% inflation, I think the Fed would have to create a recession. Yeah. I, th- I think the Fed could live with uh, um, inflation in the mid threes or the 3% range in order to sustain this recovery moving forward. So I do think that they would be willing to, to live with a uh, higher than target inflation. Um, but again, with inflation at these levels currently, um, they need to focus solely on that side of the mandate and they, they really need to risk the unemployment side of their mandate uh, in order to, to bring that back down to trend, which is why they've embarked on a very strong tightening cycle. You are putting the odds of recession at around 55%, which is not a high conviction number. So what's holding you back given the Fed stated anti-inflation policy. Well, the, the, the reason why it's at 55% and we're just turning yellow in the dashboard yep. is if you look at what's priced into the markets for the first year of this Fed tightening cycle, uh, markets are pricing 3.6% of total rate hikes. And to put that number in perspective, going back to 1955 for every Fed tightening cycle, that would be the second fastest start to a Fed tightening cycle only trailing 1980 when Volcker had to break the back of inflation. So that is a lot of tightening in a right. short period of time. And let's not forget that quantitative tightening is going on in the background as well. So this recreates a situation for where the Fed may do too much because of the lags that monetary policy acts on the economy. So that's why we think that it's our base case. But in thinking about a soft landing, there's a very plausible way to, to reach that, right? It's uh, not uncommon. Um, again, going back to 1955, Three out of the last 13 tightening cycles have saw a soft landing. It happened in 1965, 1984, and 1994. And the labor market was key in each of those instances. You had a very strong labor market, and it allowed the labor demand to cool, but it didn't uh, create a situation where you saw a contraction there. So we have that dynamic with a very strong 528,000 payroll print from last month. Um, Also, I think consumers are maybe less interest rate sensitive than what they've been historically. Um, Household leverage um, is at 11%. We haven't seen household leverage at these levels since the early 1950s, right? So even if rates rise very aggressively, which they are, maybe the consumer will bend but not break. What is household leverage, the 11% household? What does that mean? It's just consumers' liabilities divided by their uh-huh. net worth. Okay. Right. So you know, net worth is through the charts. Um, you've had very strong housing markets. You've had very robust financial markets. You had a lot of excess savings due to the pandemic. Um, so consumers, you know, broadly speaking, are in, in pretty good shape right now. And I know a lot of people talk about housing, and you're you're certainly seeing some weakness there. But over 90% of Americans have a fixed rate mortgage. Right. So, yes, new buyers are going to be hurt by the affordability and the rise of mortgage rates. You're certainly going to see people with adjustable mortgages have less disposable income. But consumers are you know, relatively insulated, broadly speaking, from from that aspect of it. If you're looking at the, the economy uh, more widespread. But I think maybe the most important consideration for a soft landing is that usually businesses need to see margin pressure mm-hmm. or less profitability. For, th- for a long time before they resort to trimming their staff. And margins peaked about two quarters ago, but on average, it takes about three years from peak margin to a recession. And with you know, labor, arguably the scarcest commodity of this cycle, 
corporations may be reluctant to trim their staff given how difficult it's been to hire people in the first place. So again, while it's not our base case, I think there's a very plausible path to a potential soft landing here. What is your view of inflation? Because we've certainly seen gasoline prices coming down. Uh, food prices have been way up. Um, and, but has it peaked? I, I think it's safe to say that inflation has peaked at these levels. Uh -huh. um, I think inflation is going to move down in a, a pretty meaningful way um, in the later part of 2022 as we move into 2023. You know, you're going to see some sticky areas of inflation like shelter, like services, but goods inflation is, is clearly rolling over. Again, energy and uh, food are, are going to be rolling over, and they, they have been. And, but I think that that's a trend that continues. But again, um, where is that point line in the sand where the Fed is comfortable that this downtrend is intact, and they could potentially pivot to being a little bit less aggressive? And I don't honestly think that we're going to get visibility on that or potential rhetoric from FOMC committee members until November at the earliest. Let's go to the markets at this point and how investors should be looking at all of this. We've had a sizable sell-off in the more speculative segments of the market, you know, the meme stocks and SPACs and IPOs and in high PE growth stocks, but they are coming back and the overall market uh, has not suffered a big decline compared to other bear markets. So what's your assessment of market valuations at this point and also risks? You kind of hit the nail on the head there, Consuelo. If you think about this bear market, it has not been anywhere near um, this similar magnitude or duration of what you've typically seen. So going back to 1946, average bear market lasts 16 months. Average decline has been 35.1%. So we're nowhere near either of those metrics. And, and conceptually, most bear markets have two components. The first is that multiple compression happens. PE levels come down. And we had saw that. PEs coming into the year were around 21 times forward earnings. Um, they got down to about 15 and change. But with this recent rally, PEs are back up to 18, right? So I think that's a little bit optimistic given the slower growth environment that we're going to see in a potential recession. But the other part of a bear market is earnings expectations. And looking out at earnings expectations, they've only just started to come down by about two or 3%. And in looking at the last three recessions, earnings expectations came down closer to 25%. So I think this is just starting to be priced into the markets. And given the backdrop that we've talked about, even if we do have a soft landing, I think the markets are a little bit optimistic at these levels. So I'm anticipating um, some choppiness some volatility over the course of the next four months until visibility can be restored on A, do we have a recession, but B, how well do earnings actually hold up? And uh, again, I think there's a, a lot of optimism baked into the markets at this point. Your advice to Clearbridge investors for their retirement portfolios, have, have you been advising them to make any significant changes? We haven't. From a long-term perspective, from a retirement perspective, mm -hmm. um, you're going to have bear markets. Um, it's just a part of the, the investment game. Um, but what our view has been really ever since the global financial crisis ended uh, is that we firmly believe that we're in a secular bull market for U.S. equities. So if you go back to the 1930s, usually U.S. equities go through a 10 to 20 year period where they don't go anywhere. Those are known as secular bear markets, but they're always followed by a very strong 20-year period following that where you have outsized equity returns, better known as secular bull markets. And you know, after the secular bear market of the 2000s, 
we continue to believe that this is year 12 of 20 where you're going to continue to have outsized U.S. equity returns. So um, this is the time where you want to maintain your equity exposure, even if you are going to see some downward pressure in equities. Um, we think that um, given where we are in these longer term cycles, that U.S. equities are, are still an area of, of opportunity, at, at least through the, the rest of this decade. And one of the major trends that I know you've talked about for years at Clearbridge as, as well uh, is the growth versus value uh, you know, conundrum and the fact that growth has way outperformed value stocks. What's your advice on that front? Uh, are you advising uh, rebalancing out of the growth stocks and more into value? Well, look, if you've had that growth overweight in your portfolios over the last, you know, call it 14 years, yep. kudos, right? It's been an excellent run for growth stocks. But let's not forget, following the global financial crisis, it was a very different environment. You had slow growth in the U.S. because consumers were overextended because of the housing bubble. Banks were overextended. Uh, they need to bring their leverage ratios and heal their balance sheets as well. So you had this period of, of really slow economic activity. And when you have those periods, these companies that can deliver outsized growth are, are favored by investors and, and rightfully so. But in thinking about where we are today, right? Banks are in excellent financial condition. Um, you know, their capital ratios are, are really good at this point. Consumers are in, in really good shape. Um, I mentioned household net worth is up at $150 trillion, household leverage, 50-year lows. Um, consumers are in, 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 in very good positions here. Um, and I think businesses are in very good positions as well. So I think we're going to be entering into a higher growth regime over the course of this decade. And if that indeed is the case, value is going to do better on a relative basis. Um, so I think, you know, if you've had that overweight in growth, that's great, but you really want to think about equal weighting growth and value, because I do think that the performance is going to be much closer um, than what we saw last cycle. And so equal weighting, not overweight in values. I think that in the near term with, you know, U.S. economic risks rising, um, global ris risks rising, China not resorting to a large scale stimulus package, which is a very marked departure than what we've seen leadership ha have when you've had slower growth over there. Um, I think in the near term, I think growth is going to outperform value over the next call it six to nine months until we can get visibility on the path of the global economy. But coming out the other side of this with inflation that's you know, going to be structurally higher than what we saw last decade, growth prospects maybe a little bit better because of the health of the consumer and businesses and banks. Um, I think value is probably going to lead on a, a relative basis versus growth. So even if you have a overweight in the, the value complex, I think that's a, a good long-term thought process for this cycle. But I, again, I want to temper expectations because I am expecting growth to outperform on the near-term basis. And when you're talking about value, you mentioned the banks. What other sectors are you talking about? I think banks um, are, are attractive here. Again, rock solid um, shape. Um, I do think that this is going to be a relatively shallow recession if we have one. So loan losses probably aren't going to be what you've normally seen in a recessionary type of environment. But I, I do think that value um, holds a couple of key areas that uh, have structural upside, which is materials and energy. Um, I think materials and energy, uh, again, we talked about this kind of secular bull market in U.S. equities. Um, I think that we're embarking on a secular bull market um, for the, the commodity and energy sector as mm. well. 
Um, the last secular bull market that we saw for commodities with, was with China's industrialization. Um, really good boom from the late 90s up until the global financial crisis. And those areas have seen a lot of pain, right? Because a lot of supply came on because of China's industrialization. And you didn't have the growth following the global financial crisis. So it's been an, an area that's been painful for investors, but demand has finally caught up to supply. And I think we're the very early innings of a five to 10 year process where you're going to see higher prices in the commodity and energy uh, complex. And, and that's going to be really good for those equities and profitability. So um, those are overweights in the, the value complex. And I think that's going to be one of the reasons why value is going to do much better this cycle than what we saw last cycle. So one investment for a long-term diversified portfolio, Jeff, what should we all have some of in a long-term diversified portfolio? Again, even though we may have some near-term headwinds, to energy, to commodities, to value. Um, so you have some time to, to really think about legging into those areas. Um, as we come out the other side of this and we have some better visibility on the recession or coming out of the recession or the slowdown, um, I think that these are, are areas of our opportunity over the next five to 10 years. So usually when you go through a large cycle, um, coming out into a new cycle, the winners from the last cycle are not the winners of the new cycle. Um, and last cycle, the, the big losers were energy commodities and value. And I think that we're, we're, we're shaping up for a very different environment here in the, the 2020s. What's the biggest risk out there to uh, your forecast and also uh, for investors? I think the biggest risk is stickier inflation than what people are anticipating right now. Um, obviously, um, you could continue to see a very resilient consumer. Um, if that indeed is the case, that means that there's going to be higher demand uh, for things, which is going to keep inflation higher um, than what a lot of people are expecting as we move into 2023. And if that is the case, even though there is a lot of tightening that's being priced for the Fed, the Fed may ultimately have to raise rates even more aggressively than what what's currently being priced. And if that's the case, you know, my expectation, if we even had a recession, is it going to be a relatively shallow one. But if the Fed needs to get the Fed funds rate to four and a half or five percent to really stamp out inflation and maintain uh, their credibility, um, that's going to be a situation where you're going to see a much deeper impact on earnings and a much bigger market sell-off than what I'm anticipating. So my biggest uh, concern right now is the durability of inflation. And let's end this on a positive note. Uh, what are you most encouraged about? Well, I'm most encouraged about the, the relatively res resilience of the, the labor market right now. You, you've seen a, a very strong July payrolls print at 528,000 jobs that were created. Um, yes, you're starting to see initial jobless claims rise, and that's one of the top three variables in the recession risk dashboard. But I, I do think that the labor markets can cool from here, but doesn't necessarily have to roll over. And maybe one of the best data points to show this is the job opening survey has dropped by 1.2 million job openings over the last three months. Huge decline, and that means that we've seen peak labor market tightness. And Again, if wage growth can come back down into the four, four and a half percent range, that may be enough for the Fed to feel comfortable that uh, inflation isn't going to get out of control. It can come back to modest levels uh, and we can have a, a slowdown, but not necessarily a recession. And you will be tracking all of these uh, indicators on your recession risk dashboard. So I look forward to following it uh, and looking for any changes uh, on the upside or downside. So Jeff Schulze, 
investment strategist at Clearbridge Investments. Thank you so much for joining us again on WealthTrack. Thank you for having me. For previous interviews with Clearbridge Investment strategist Jeff Schulze, go to WealthTrack.com. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel. Thank you for listening and make the week ahead a healthy, profitable, and productive one. <laughs>